we are doing a little series uh, called Seasons of Spiritual Warfare series, Seasons of Spiritual Warfare. And I'm going to review quite a bit in the second service, not so much now, but we started with just the assumption, uh, or the assertion, I should say, not the assumption, we weren't assuming, we were asserting that based on biblical evidence, that there are some seasons in your life where you have more resistance from Satan's kingdom. And we don't like to think about spiritual things much in, in modern times. We're pretty natural-minded. Uh, we're, we exalt reason over revelation. We uh, mistrust uh, absolutes and authority and, and, and especially spiritual things. But uh, the, the Bible does tell us that there really is a person called Satan. We will review a little bit about what we said about him in the second meeting, but uh, Satan is called the devil, the slanderer, the accuser. He's called the serpent, the dragon, the prince of the power of the air, Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. He's called Abandon and Apollyon and other names in the scripture. Satan means adversary. And he's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's a creature. Uh, most... You, you, we, we say, I've been, oh, gee, the devil's been resisting me a lot, but actually the devil's never heard of you, <laughs> and nor has he probably heard of me or, or our church, because Satan is, is not omniscient. He's limited, but he does rule over a kingdom that's highly organized, so there are satanic angels and principalities that have heard of us. And to whatever degree God wants to use a church or whatever, it'll have a, a high amount of resistance getting started and, uh, and so forth. And even in your own spiritual life, if God wants to use somebody in your life, you'll have uh, satanic resistance from that relationship forming. So um, we'll look at more of that. We covered that in the first week. We looked at, uh, in the second week, we looked at that all... Uh, all spiritual warfare, Satan's kingdom has satanic angels and it has demons. We don't like to deal with that a lot, but the truth is about one-third of Jesus' ministry, if you read the Gospels carefully, was casting out demons. And he was living in a culture that was much more godly than our current culture. So either you have to buy into the modern humanistic evolutionary idea that he was accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of his time, or you have to admit that Western culture, since the Enlightenment, because of our skepticism about spiritual and supernatural things, that we underestimate how, how spiritual life really is. So with all that today, I just want to get into, uh, I actually meant to have Larry do a Bible reading to start, so I'm going to just do it real quick. But And I'm going to uh, continue on what we talked about last week and for both services uh, and that's things we must practice. The first two messages were thing called things we must know regarding spiritual warfare. And this, these last two are things we must practice. Let's turn to Ephesians 6. And again, either the Apostle Paul is accommodating himself to the psychological backwardness of his time, or this is the eternal word of God. You have to choose. As a Christian, you either have to believe this is the eternal word of God, or not. But there really isn't a middle ground. So in Ephesians 6.10, he's, t uh, by the way, Ephesians, but if you think demons and all this is just for the immature, emotional, 
Of all the New Testament letters, Ephesians is by far the letter written to the most mature church. Just like 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the letters written to the least mature church. That's why they're so important for America today. Ephesians is the, is the letter written to the most mature Christians of any of the letters. And he ends it this way. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You may think it's about your roommate or your professors or, uh, or your parents or your brother or something. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. In all, or in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which with you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in op the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak." Now that's all one paragraph. And so it's all one thought. And Paul is talking about spiritual forces of wickedness and what we need to do to stand firm in the context of saying, pray on our behalf that utterance may be given us for the opening of our mouths to, to share the gospel. One of the things you'll find is that a lot of spiritual warfare is directed against the church to keep the church from going on the offensive to liberate lost people. In other words, he's very happy if all you ever do is take care of the church building, take care of one another, but you, but you never share the gospel or liberate captives. Once you set your heart to reach out uh, to the world around you, that's when spiritual seasons of spiritual warfare will increase. Notice that when Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, it was right after he was filled with the Holy Spirit at John's baptism and right before he came out in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom uh, to the poor, liberating captives and making disciples. Satan's ultimate goal is to keep you from taking the offensive. As long as all of our ministry is just to God, in other words, we're worshipers, we worship and pray, but we never go out and, and, and use that prayer to advance the kingdom. Genesis 4, 7 says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is actually a, a force in the, in the scriptures. It's a power. It's not just a, a concept. And sin's desire is to destroy you how much more the demonic spirits you know jesus said that uh, i came that you might have it life and have more more abundantly but the thief comes to kill and rob and destroy there is a thief who wants to kill you rob you and destroy you and you must master him or he will kill you rob you and destroy you luke 4 verse 1 and 2 
And then jumping to verse 13, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. See, the Holy Spirit ordains that you go through temptation. He was led around in the Spirit for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. We're going to talk about temptation this morning. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. See, there's a purpose for temptation. And the purpose is that God wants you to progressively enter into Christ who was able to say, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. So, uh, Paul exhorts the Corinthians that, that, uh, that they should understand the schemes of Satan so that he might not outwit them or take advantage of them. So here's, with that, that, that little bit of scripture background and, and what uh, some of you were here for the first couple messages in the series, I'm going to look at seven things today. I'll hopefully get through like three or four of them in this hour, in the last three or four of them in the, in the worship hour. But I'm going to look through seven, seven aspects of spiritual warfare that you face, whether you know it or not. Do you know that, do you know that like, I, I think you know enough from things like colds and flus you can have enemies that you don't see, right? Yes. And um, what you don't know can hurt you. So the first uh, aspect of spiritual warfare is spiritual warfare is designed to bring temptation. Now, it's a primary purpose of Satan's kingdom to bring uh, temptation. Now, we could ask the question, is it a primary purpose of God? for Satan's purpose to bring temptation, or is it a primary purpose of Satan? Actually, both. Satan is opposite God in character and purpose, but he's not opposite God in omniscience or power or anything. He's a creature. He's very limited. And God allows Satan for his sanctifying purposes in your life. You must overcome him. So a primary purpose of Satan is to use temptation to destroy you. But a primary purpose of God is for that same temptation that Satan intends to destroy you, to sanctify you, to mature you, to cause you to learn how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. If by the Holy Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, then they will not rule over you, Romans 8. So uh, here's some things about temptation, Matthew 4, 3. It says, and the tempter came to him, that is to Jesus. So another name for Satan is the tempter. And he attacks him in terms of his identity. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. First Thessalonians 3, 5 says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He had planted a church there, and if you read the whole letter, he sent Timothy because he was concerned. Various reports he heard or whatever, he was concerned lest the tempter had, had tempted them, and therefore the labor they had invested in, in the Thessalonians would be in vain. Do you know there's no higher purpose or labor than to be used of God to lead someone to Christ and disciple them into maturity? And that's what gets the most opposition. If you set your heart to, to, you know, if we just minister to one another, there's one level of spiritual warfare. But if we set our heart to reach out 
to baby Christians, to half-hearted Christians, to non-Christians, to Christians that are Christians in name only, Christians that maybe have a love for the Lord but have never grown strong in the Word. Or If we set our hearts to, to minister, to form the fullness of Christ in people, that's where you'll experience some resistance. Matthew 6, or 26, I'm sorry, 40 through 42, Jesus it says, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so, Peter, not Peter, <laughs> Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me one hour, keeping watch and praying that you keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. I always joke around, I can withstand anything except temptation. That's, you know. Uh, <laughs> temptation will lead you to God. It'll either lead you into destructive habits and destructive lifestyle and destructive patterns, or it will lead you to the grace and power of God. There's, there's no other choice. You'll either by the, find the grace of God to overcome the temptation, or it will overcome you. Now, here's some ways to overcome temptation. Four ways that I listed there could be more. Number one, know and quote the scripture out loud. One of the things that even secular psychologists are saying is what they call the millennial generation, the people under 30 today, are the most passive generation in American history. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that's because uh, videos, things like TV, YouTube, et cetera, things like that make you passive because the way you're taking in information is not as active as reading. Uh, there's lots of, lots of theories as to why that is. But even most Christians say, oh, I love, I, they loved, I love to go to a church where there's good praise and worship, but I don't sing along. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, but I, I enjoy this, the atmosphere of it, but I don't enter in. There's something about speaking the word out loud that breaks activity. If you're going to have any kind of prayer life, you either need to pray out loud, pray, pray a prayer list. Uh, there's nothing wrong with praying pre-written prayers of Christians throughout the centuries. Uh, but you're going to have to find a way to get more actively involved so that you're just not saying, I'm praying, but you're just really wasting a half an hour, an hour with your mind drifting all over the place. That's what most people do today in the name of prayer. So uh, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, 4, it says he answered and said. In Matthew 4, 4, he answered and said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Anywhere know where it is? It's from Deuteronomy 8, 3. So Jesus knew the word of God enough to quote it back to Satan. So if it, the second temptation, Satan actually upped his game and started quoting scripture out of context to Jesus. Right? So, and then Jesus said to him, because Satan had said it is written. So Jesus said, on the other hand, it is written. He, he, he counteracted his wrong interpretation. But he, it doesn't say that Jesus thought this, does it? Jesus is out in the wilderness. Like today, we, we would... Very few of us would pray out loud in our, in our shower or in our study or whatever, right? We just, our idea of prayer is a very passive, quiet thing. 
But Jesus is in the wilderness, and there's no one there but God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, uh, and a whole realm of angels and demons. It's a spiritual battle. And Jesus talks, it says he said these things. He didn't think them passively. He's, there, there is, uh, you know, when God created the world, he didn't, it doesn't say in the Bible, and God thought, let there be light. Did he? No, he said, let there be light. And the universes are still unfolding. There's power that's like a ripple effect in the spoken word. Matthew 14, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, or go, Satan, for it is written. Psalm 119.9, here's a verse you ought to, if you're a young man under 85, you uh, should probably know this one. How can a young man keep his word, keep his way pure, I'm sorry, by guarding it according to your word? No scriptures. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which is the Greek word pharmakeia, which get, we get pharmacy from. It has to do with using mood-altering drugs, smoking pot, etc., Enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. In other words, to fight divisiveness. We'll talk about that later. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice thing, such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, every one of Paul's epistles has just as adamant of a charge against living in the flesh. To the point where he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, people always go, does that mean that you won't even go to heaven? I don't know for sure. I certainly think it means you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven's presence that you're supposed to live in now. And I don't think you'll actually like heaven if you don't like living in the presence and spirit of God now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is is in heaven. And it very, I, it very well mean, may mean that you're not really converted. That you, you know, um, the Bible is very clear that those who have faith, their faith leads them to a sanctified process. So know and quote the scriptures out loud. Don't just passively uh, let yourself, your moods get this. Most people who get into various kinds of destructive moods are really passive about how it, the process. You have, you have, you've been given the ability to worship out loud, to pray out loud, to quote scripture out loud, and you can, you can throw off those kind of attacks. But it's not going to happen passively. Secondly, pray and fast. Matthew 17, 21, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Isaiah 58 is a chapter that, depending on you count, has 10, 11, or 12 promises for those who fast regularly. Uh, and it's about the Day of Atonement, actually. So it, those who fast, even for a day, with the right motives. Do you want those promises? Or do you want to you know, live on people? I always hear, you know, People say, well, I'm, how you doing? Well, I'm fine under the circumstances. Paul, we, I don't want to be flippant. I don't want to be unkind. But the truth is we're not actually supposed to live under the circumstances. 
as Christians. Like he, he rebuked the Corinthians, who was the most immature Christians in the New Testament. And he said, you're walking like mere men. Like a Christian is actually supposed to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that your life is supernatural. That you're not walking like natural-minded, normal men. And God is for you, and he, he is willing to help you learn to get there. Like this, this is not, you don't beat yourself up with this, but receive it as a challenge that God has grace for me to live these ways. Thirdly is confession, accountability, and mutual prayer. First John uh, chapter 1, he says, I write these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to confess every little sin you did, but the, the Protestant idea that you never have to confess your sins to another brother or sister is just nonsense. It's not, you can't support that with Scripture. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In John 20, Jesus told the first disciples, and, I, and by implication all disciples after him, if you, if you forgive the sins of any, they've been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. There's a real place for breaking the spiritual warfare off of your life to, by going to get help from a brother or sister that's wiser, older, more steadfast in the Lord at more years. You know, I've been in this thing 39 years, and I still call my pastor, who's been, a, been in the ministry for six months longer than I've been alive, and I confess my sins. I tell him what I'm struggling with. Uh, if, you, if you study anything about ancient warfare, we're going to talk about the phalanx principle t today. But the whole, the whole way, they, the, the, the thing that, that Alexander the Great invented that was adopted by the Romans called a phalanx, what the whole idea was your brother, the guy next to you, carried the shield for you. You had the spear for the guy to your right and the shield for the guy to your left, and vice versa. You, were, you, you went out in battle covered by one another. And if, if you couldn't break the row, then you couldn't, you couldn't win. This highly radical individualistic way of doing Christianity today doesn't work. God meant for you to have older Christian brothers and sisters disciple you, strengthen you, teach you, etc. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. That's why Satan wants you to walk alone. Proverbs 18 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all strong against all wisdom. In other words, the person who would do this Christian walk alone is quarreling against wisdom itself. And the scriptures tell us Christ is wisdom. Colossians says in Jesus Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You were never meant to go it alone. There's not grace for it. Um I have here James 5, 16. There's, uh, if, if you're not familiar with the fact that we have what we call a recommended foundational book list, one of the books on that list is a book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know him for his more famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, or his other less famous book called Letters from Prison. He wrote pretty much three really famous books. He was a pastor who uh, 
took an assignment uh, to teach in a seminary in, in New York City just as Hitler was coming to power in Germany, and he said, I can't abandon the people I've been pastored when they're facing this kind of madman and this kind of danger. And he went back to pastor in Germany, knowing full well the dangers, because he said, Christ has called us to, to proclaim his light wherever darkness is, is screaming the loudest. Why do you think we came to the inner, in, the inner cities of America have become one of the darkest places on the planet? darker than most third world countries by far. So uh, in his book, Life Together, of course, uh, you might also know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and uh, he was part of the plot. To, uh, and if you ever saw the movie Valkyrie, he was actually part of that plot to kill Hitler. And uh, as a Christian, interesting, uh, I, I think he's right. And uh, in his book called, called Life Together, he, the last chapter is really short, but it's called Confession and Community. And it will help you understand uh, how to relate to your brothers and sisters in a way that will cause you to receive grace from them and grow from them. It's Life Together. It's on point three there on, uh, on your outline. Uh, Roman numeral two, uh, big letter A, small, small number three. Fourthly, get in the spirit daily. Uh, some of us are so passive, we never break. You know, God gave you worship and praise. He gave you prayer. He gave you Bible reading. Uh, he, he gives you gifts of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the ability to edify yourself in a prayer language. All the gifts God gave you are for you to come into the presence of God daily. Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you don't abide in me, which is the Greek word meno, we're going to look at that again later today. If you don't abide in me, reside in me, uh, stay in touch with my spirit, filled with my spirit, uh, then you can't do anything. You'll dry up as a branch. Believe me, you cannot overcome even the most basic level of temptations and spiritual resistance in your life if you're not filled with God's spirit regularly there's an old saying seven days without prayer makes one week spelling week week both ways so uh, read the scriptures contemplatively and read them in prayer worship aloud pray in the spirit get touch encounter God every day The Bible doesn't say those who are led by some nice feelings and good thoughts are the sons of God. It's those who are led by the Spirit of God. Study, read through the Gospels and ask yourself, am I encountering the Spirit of God in the way Jesus did? In the way he said in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 would be normative for his followers. It does, does my encounters with the Spirit of God look like the book of Acts? That actually is available to us and in, in normative. All right, so that's kind of point one or point A. There's seven of these. A, B, C, D, E, F, G adds up to seven. Uh, the second one we touched on a little bit at the end last week, but I want to reiterate it. Conviction versus condemnation. We struggle with this in more ways than we know. 
Uh, Condemnation is actually always founded in pride, and I hope by the time I'm done talking about this this morning, you'll see that and you'll and you'll be set free from it. But Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I probably should have put verse 2, which says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Lisa likes that one, I can tell. She was quoting it along with me. Uh, yeah, it's set you free. You know, uh, one of the things you need to do is ask God's forgiveness once for things that are more habits and uh, dangerous or whatever. Get a brother involved. But then forgive yourself. You have to actively receive God's forgiveness. And don't confess to the same sins four, five, seven, ten times. Receive God's forgiveness and stand on it. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. Now, Sidney knows a lot more about astronomy than I do, so he maybe could explain it better. But as far as I can understand, as far as the east is from the west is beyond your mental capacity to understand. Right? If you go east and you go west, uh, in, not, you know, not limited by the, list, <laughs> the Earth's atmosphere, how far can you go? Well, you know, even at the speed of light, you could go billions and billions of miles. That's how far he's removed his... He's not bringing them back up to you. Amen. That's right. Our flesh likes to bring them back up to us. The, there are demonic spirits that like to bring them back up to us. And where you have to take your stand is, I've confessed this sin to the Lord, and the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if there's any doubt, confess it to an older brother in the Lord, one of the elders of the church or one of the brothers that the, that you, the church recognizes as being solid and mature guys. That's why we even have a prayer team, among other reasons. We have a prayer team of people who know how to pray for you. So, um, now, here's, here's how I want to help you understand that the condemnation is actually rooted in pride. Let's look at this next verse. Romans 10, 2, 4 says, For I testify about them, Paul is talking about the Jewish brothers that, that had rejected Christ, the Jewish people who had rejected Christ and were, were religious and self-righteous. There's a lot of performance-based Christianity in America today, and it comes in all flavors. There's evangelical, reformed, Catholic, performance-based Christianity. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now I'm going to get a little personal here. I hope, I hope you'll indulge me with that a little bit, because really the only time I share personal stuff is if I think it might help you with whatever you're struggling with. My parents came to Christ when I was 17 years old. They were born again, baptized in the Spirit. They quickly had a Christian bookstore in their home. They, were, they had a deliverance ministry where pastors from all over Northeast Ohio sent people to them to, to get demons cast out of them and, and for counseling and all kinds of things. And I didn't want anything to do with it. 
I called them the parents. I was so bitter at my father that he had a, a meeting with our family where he asked his forgiveness for having been a bad father, not spent much time with us and being too gone on business too much. And, and uh, all my brothers and sisters said, we forgive you. I, when it got my turn, I said, I do not forgive you. I don't like you. I don't want anything to do with you. Please stay the hell away from me. I was a bitter, angry young man. I was 12 years old. You don't always have a lot of wisdom at the age of 12. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, back then, I, at the risk of being politically incorrect, back then there, uh, people had uh, domestic servants, cleaning ladies, and unfortunately the nature of the system was normally white people had black servants and so forth. And we had a black cleaning lady who really loved God and was full of the Spirit and was Pentecostal Christian. And her, <laughs> my mom and her were supposed to be doing chores and housework and dishes, but they were all just, just reading the word, Bible and worshiping and stuff instead. But then, uh, you know, having a great time and uh, good job if you can get it. But uh, I'm still looking for that job. But uh, <laughs> somebody to pay me just to read the Bible and worship and talk about the Lord all day long. So... Um, you know, but, you know, uh, my mom was like, you know, moms, they like to worry. It's like their job. <laughs> if they're not worrying, they're not happy sometimes. And she would, she had like a thousand Christians praying for me. And I was like, not wanting anything to do with it. But this, this, um, this one lady, Trudy, she would, she would go, Mrs. Wise, quit worrying and fretting about that boy, Mrs. Wise, because I tell you, the hand of the Lord is upon that boy, Mrs. Wise, and he is fr frigiding and fighting and running to get away, but don't you worry, the hand of the Lord's upon that boy, and I, sometimes I'd overhear talking, oh my God, you know, like, <laughs> leave me alone, get out of my face, I don't even want, you know, I don't, I don't receive that, <laughs> I should have learned I don't receive that in the name of Jesus, I, I didn't know that yet. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I don't want to tell you all the details, but it took, by when I was 17, I was so strung out on drugs that I started having uh, demonic experiences. My spirit started leaving my body. I don't know if you ever studied soul travel in the Eastern stuff. Um, it, took, uh, it took me reading for hours. It took the death of my closest brother. It took a lot of things to get me on fire for the Lord. Now, I could live the rest of my Christian life going, like, why did I resist? I'd even gone forward at a Billy Graham crusade like two or three years earlier with totally false motives. Like, I, there was this tugging on my heart. I thought, maybe, maybe this stuff has some validity. And then I thought, you know, if I went forward, my dad would get off my back. <laughs> so I went forward to get my dad off my I had no right motives at all about anything. Now, I could beat myself up the rest of my life about that, but the truth of the matter is, is God will draw you when he draws you. He'll grant you repentance when he grants you repentance. And when you receive his forgiveness, receive it. Condemnation is based on the idea that I should have done better in and of myself. And I don't care what you were involved in, drugs, sexual addiction, uh, stealing cars, you know, homosexuality, what, uh, whatever problem you had, God is the one who set you free. And to beat yourself up and say, I should have done better, not without the grace of God. So condemnation is, is, is kind of a, a, a last-ditch effort to assert your own righteousness. That's really what it is. 
it's a, like, I don't want to finally break once and for all before God and receive his grace. Because you know why you're here today? If you're, in, if you're a Christian, you're in here because he chose you. John 15, 16, you didn't choose him, he chose you. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Whatever, whether you were, uh, what the world looks at as a minor sinner or what the world looks at as a major league sinner, you, you were turned by his grace. And you're forgiven by his grace. And your cleansing is no less or more than someone else. Because it's all the cleansing of Christ. We have an, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Do you know there are two people praying for you before the Father at all times? Satan is accusing you to, to God and to yourself. And Jesus is, is, is living to always make intercession, saying, no, he's not right. I died for him. He's one of mine. He's been cleansed. He's been forgiven. He's been justified. Hallelujah. And it gets down to, condemnation gets down to a matter of who you're going to ultimately believe. Are you going to trust your feelings that I'm like the worst sinner of all times? I, you know, I got, I got kicked out of Cub Scouts. <laughs> it's, it's forgiven. <laughs> I didn't get to be in Boy Scouts because I got kicked out of Cub Scouts and they wouldn't take me in Boy Scouts. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> oh, well. Revelation 12, 9 and 10 talks about the serpent, the devil, uh, who Satan, who deceives the whole world. And then it talks about how he was thrown down and, and how they proclaimed the uh, God and the authority of his Christ have come and the accuser of our brethren have been thrown down. He accuses them before God day and night. Here's what I always say. If you let him beat you at door number one, what's that show they have with door number one? The, 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 no, let's, that's, let's make a deal, I think. Yeah, but, uh, you know what? If you, let, if you get deceived, if you, get, if, you know, if you steal something, whatever you do, whatever sin there is, Confess it to God, but don't let the accuser of the brethren take you through door number two. If he gives you a whooping at door number one, stop, turn around, ask God's forgiveness, and go back on through the door of Christ. Don't go through door number two thinking if I grovel enough and feel guilty enough and heap enough shame on myself, then, then surely God will see how serious I am. Not really. It doesn't work. <laughs> Ask me how I know. It doesn't work. Look at those verses at the at the uh, top of the back page. Hebrews seven talks about how Jesus, there. Uh, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. He's also to, able to save forever those who draw near to God, because he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the accuser of the brethren, remember Job, the beginning two chapters of Job? It says all these uh, sons of God and angels and whatever, there's this heavenly court, and, and, and Satan starts to accuse Job, and actually wrongfully. He said, you know, Job just worships you because he's got it made, and da, da, da. He does that kind of stuff toward you every day. But Jesus, your high priest, is living to make intercession and you've got to decide whose prayers you're going to let hit you. The phalanx principle. Let's, uh, let's get into this one, and then we'll start with point D at the second meeting. Um, does, there, does that help? Uh, 
By the way, when it comes to this condemnation thing too, listen to this. I believe that if you're a born-again Christian, there should be some vital signs of life. Just like in the natural, you can tell if a baby's alive or dead, right? And there are vital signs like a hunger for God's word, a desire to change your lifestyle and so forth, uh, a desire to witness. And I can show you all that scripturally. We have a very good teaching called Five Vital Signs of Life. However, there are people who are more damaged than others, and there are people who are spiritual prisoners of war. Don't, when you're working with people, add heap condemnation on condemnation. They need to con- confess their sins once, and then they need to start standing on the grace of God. You know, there's an excellent, kind of very difficult movie to watch called The Hanoi Hilton. And it was all about what the prisoners of war went through in, in uh, Vietnam, the American prisoners of war. But just because someone is a prisoner of war doesn't make them any less an American citizen, right? And part of what we are about at Grace Christian Fellowship is we want to produce strong, healthy Christians. I'm going to read 1 John 2 about how the young men are, uh, and young women in the Lord are strong. The word of God abides in them, and they've overcome the evil one. I'm going to talk about that verse in the second meeting. But there are times when people just are struggling with condemnation or they're struggling with an ongoing sin or whatever. That, that doesn't necessarily mean they've not been converted. That takes some wisdom to know. But in many cases, they've been converted. They just need some help to get set free. So, um, you know, the church has this wonderful way. I was actually uh, talking to a lady my wife had and I had over for dinner a few weeks back and uh, went to a Christian university and so forth. And she's kind of struggling with a lot of things about God and the church, partly because she came from a church that uh, if anyone confessed any sins, they would actually get excommunicated. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have any members. We're, we're, <laughs> we're a small church as it is, but I mean, <laughs> might, as, might as well just forget it. But uh, you're not allowed to come here unless you're a sinner. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, people have stuff. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you know what? If Christ, uh, everyone knows John 3, 16. Please do me a favor. Memorize John 3, 17. It's a better verse than John 3, 16, especially for Christians. It says, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Just think about it. If his goal was to he, he, so much, there's so much condemnation in American Christianity. If that was his goal, why would he have had to come? Think if you think about it biblically, we had that already, right before Christ came. So if that was what his goal was, was to point out our shortcomings and so forth, we already knew, we already had that. The law told us that. The law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, Christ, part of his ministry was, he said, the world hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. But he came to set captives free, not, not to hold them in bondage. 
see if I can at least introduce the Fang Lakes principle. Remember, we're talking about seasons of spiritual warfare. Let me just tell you this. The Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. I think it's interesting that the, the Apostle Paul, read this carefully, want to do a great, this makes a great Bible study. Just look up prayer or the word pray and then limit your search to Pauline epistles. And look how often Paul is actually requesting prayer for himself. Now, let's put this in a little perspective. That's a little like Paul saying, hey, Sam, could you please not forget to pray for me? I could imagine myself going, you know, Paul wants me to pray for him. Are you kidding me? Right? Wouldn't we all kind of react like that? <laughs> you know, you'd be like, Paul, Paul wants me to pray for him. <laughs> Are you kidding? I need him to pray for me. He asked for prayer from the churches every time. I'll tell you why. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. There is way more spiritual warfare on uh, people who've been designated by God to care for the sheep, to be overseers, to protect them, and especially if their ministry is to take the church on the offensive. Now, at the risk of, of uh, someone saying, well, gee, you're playing favorites, I want to get really specific. Jason and Carla are leading our attack at Wright State. Therefore, the spiritual warfare in their life has grown. John is leading the church in terms of, in some ways, he's the point person of our church and worship and teaching and so forth more than I am. Therefore, there's spiritual warfare against John and Emily. You know, my job is to go out and lead new people to Christ and disciple. You know, what we have in America today is we have thousands of people who have been converted a little bit to Christianity, but know very little. You, uh, the vast majority of the Christians have never read the Bible or experienced the power of the Holy Spirit or, or gotten anywhere past the beginning door of starting to go to church and, and understanding a little bit about Christ or whatever. When you go to say, hey, there's a whole more abundant life in Christ, there's going to be more spiritual warfare. So pray for my wife and I. Larry and Lisa have started this read to kindergartners and taken on the school down here as a ministry. Guess what? There's going to be spiritual warfare. Other views are being discipled uh, with a specific goal of leading things like Wright State Campus Ministry in two or three years from now. There's going to be spiritual warfare. And that spiritual warfare is... The accuser of the brethren will try to take, you know, bring accusations against the church and etc. We'll we'll uh, look at that more in the next meeting. Jesus said, "You will all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered." You know, I believe there will come a time in Grace Christian Fellowship's history where the Lord will have mercy on you all and take me to be with Jesus. <laughs> and everyone will go, thank you, Lord. We're, liber we're liberated from this pastor. No, <laughs> he was always wanting us to read the word more or do this. You know, thank you, Jesus. No, but you know what? He'll do that when the church is good and ready for it. You know, when God has continued to raise up Jason and John and, and a whole string of other leaders, and the church will keep moving forward. 
And it'll probably be to your advantage that I get out of the way. Hopefully I'll be smart enough to go start a church in Columbus before God has to kill me. But, uh, <laughs> or Nairobi, Kenya. But you, I hope you're, you get the phalanx thing a little bit. We'll talk more about what a phalanx was in the next meeting and we'll pick up for, right from there.